It's a powerful, great sound system that you guys had. I'm sure when Jeff gets back, the glories of the Lord will spring forth from it. Um, Thank you for the water. TJ has assured me that he did not drink from it. If he did, then nice cup of COVID water. Uh, If you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 20, where we're going to be looking at Jesus' resurrection encounter with the Apostle Thomas. Now, one of uh, a great apologetic for the validity of the scriptures is the faults that we see in the apostles themselves. I mean, you think about it. If you were going to make up a religion, would you make one up that persistently shows the faults of its leaders? Well, here we have one of the apostles struggling with doubt, and we see the rest of the apostles hiding in fear and Jesus greatly confronting them. So we're going to look at John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. So if you have that there, please read along with me. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is God's holy word. Let's pray to him and ask that he would speak to us this morning. Lord, we come to you asking that you'd meet us in our weakness and that you would help us in our doubts. Strengthen our faith this morning so that we may know you and glorify you. By the power of your Holy Spirit, open our eyes, O Lord, that we may behold wonderful things from your law. This we ask in your Son, Jesus' holy name. Amen. Doubt has been a part of my Christian testimony since even before I became a Christian. Prior to becoming a Christ, uh, being a Christian, I, I was not a Christian when I went to college. In 2001, when 9-11 happened, I was severely wrestling with the, with the, the reality of God. That same year, uh, some of my friends had died from freak accidents, some of them from drug overdoses, some as simple of an accident as falling out of a golf cart. And I remember that year asking the question, does God really exist? Flash forward a couple years later, probably my most zealous year as a Christian was my sophomore year of college. There, I wanted to share my faith with anyone I could find to share my faith with. And so I wanted to find the hardest people I could share my faith with, so I picked my atheist sociology professor. I scheduled a meeting with him and met him in his office to let him have it. I was greatly put to shame that day. Later on that evening, I even invited one of my 
smartest atheist friends from high school to come to a Bible study that night. And I was not prepared for what he had to tell me. And that night, that season, I strongly struggled with doubt. You see, doubt can feel unnerving. And for many Christians, we look at doubt as something that we just absolutely shouldn't have. And for maybe some of us, we look at doubt and say, if I have any doubt in my life, it must mean that I don't have faith. If I struggle with doubt, uh, then maybe my faith is not real faith. For us, we look at doubt and we look at it that way. So the question we ask this morning is, what do we do with doubt? What do we do with doubt? What do we do with our doubts when we have them? Today, Jesus tells us what to do with our doubts. He says, bring them to me because I can handle your doubts. So we're going to look at our text under three headings. First, we're going to see the validity in doubt. Secondly, we're going to see the source of belief. And thirdly, we're going to see the simplicity of worship. My apologies. First, we're going to see the source of belief. Secondly, we'll see the validity in doubt. And thirdly, the simplicity in worship. So let's look at our uh, first heading. The first place in Thomas, we see the source of our belief. Now, often it's the case that when we struggle with doubt, it usually happens because we've been on the defense. We've been offended in some way. Somebody has come to us and said something offensive to us. Maybe we've heard of offensive things going on in the culture, uh, ways that we are offended. And typically our first response for this is that we would gather the most amount of data, put together the best argument. However, when we begin here in dealing with our doubts, this can absolutely seem overwhelming in many places. Be honest, over the years, I have felt that when dealing with apologetics, I've often felt that I've got to be an expert in areas that I'm just quite frankly not an expert in. The more and more I read science, the more I'm convinced that I am not a scientist. There's certain levels of it I just don't understand, and I've got to be honest with myself. I'm not a scientist. But the great news is that according to Scripture, there's a better starting point. Look with me in verse 25. We see this in Thomas. After receiving the preached word, Thomas responds, unless, unless such and such happens, then I will never believe. And the primary thing we need to see here, almost as a case study we see in in Thomas, the way the world responds. Before Thomas allowed himself the ability to believe the testimony, a prior decision was made. Unless this, then, and the original language has it in the most emphatic terms, I will never believe. Before Thomas allowed himself the ability to believe, To believe the testimony, a prior commitment was made, and he set the grounds for what he decided would be acceptable to him. This provides a picture for us about how all people believe. You see, we tend to think that people believe by simply gathering information together. And then once we've gathered all the facts and everything that we can know about the world, then we put together this picture And if that's the way that we look at belief, then it's likely for us to conclude that whoever has the most facts must be the right person. But the problem is that people do not 
work this way, essentially. At their foundation, all people have pre-commitments prior to believing. In other words, before believing, people pre-decide what and how they will believe. In addition to this, belief is not primarily an activity of the head, but an activity of the heart, of a person's wants and desires. Dr. Michael Kruger in his book, Surviving Religion 101, says this. He says that a person's worldview is not so much determined by the facts as it is controlling of what a person accepts as fact in the first place. So we can think of our beliefs, these worldviews, almost like a set of glasses that we put on. And when we put these glasses on, through those glasses, we see the entire world. And imagine if you have a pair of colored glasses. I'm from Georgia, and a lot of people in Georgia are fish, fishermen. I didn't grow up fishing, but I at least know what it looks like to look at through polarized glasses. They have a little bit of an orange tint through them. But if you're not careful and you wear the orange glasses all day long, you can sometimes forget that as you're looking at a blue sky, you're not actually seeing the blue sky because you're seeing a sky colored through orange glasses. No one is neutral. The data they choose to uh, present and the data that people choose to accept, we all look through these colored glasses. But here's the shocking thing. Biblically speaking, it's not data and facts that affect this worldview as much as we like to believe. Rather, our wants and desires are the most powerful things that affect these worldviews. To put this another way, people believe based on what they want and feel most, more than on what they think and know. Let me repeat that. People believe based on what they want and feel more than what they think and know. Now, psychologists have actually confirmed this. They call this an effect heuristic. And I'm actually a college pastor. And so in my interactions with college students, I can affirm that more people either turn away from the faith or have wrestlings with the faith in college, not based off of factual data or arguments, but more often based on desires and wants. And that's what makes sin so dangerous. Our sin, our wants, these are more powerful in our lives than the things that are presented to our mind. This is also why arguments that appeal to emotions and desires typically have more power. Now again, don't hear me that I'm, I'm, not, I'm not pitting not belief and, and wants and desires against knowledge. God has made us holistic beings. And in, in Thomas, we're not seeing him struggling with his wants and desires, but we are seeing these foundational pre-commitments being made. Our wills are so powerful, and it's why scriptures, the Scripture tells us that we are in need of conversion. We literally need God to take over our wills. And it's why Jesus, in verse 27, can begin with his command, do not disbelieve, but believe. St. Anselm said this, I do not seek to understand in order to believe, 
but rather I believe in order to understand. Now you guys have been going through the book of Proverbs and I think that this is uh, succinctly summed up in the foundation of Proverbs there where we see that it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. The Proverbs don't tell us to, to gain wisdom, gain knowledge, and then after you've gained that, you've just, you can therefore justify in your conscience the fear of the Lord, but rather begin with the fear of the Lord. Begin fearing Him, and that's where to start with wisdom. It's why the New Testament, we can be told to take every thought captive to Christ. Ultimately, you are not going to convert your neighbor by having all the answers to their questions. So when you struggle with doubt, realize that all people live by faith. And this brings us to our second point. In Thomas, not only do we see the source of our belief, but we also see the validity in doubt. You know, it, it's comforting. It, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon that, it, that it's comforting just going to the doctor. I mean, think about it. You, you have an illness that you want cured, yet just going to the doctor and having the doctor lay eyes on you and say to you, I, I see what's going on. I understand why this response in your body makes sense to me. Even if you're not cured, there's comfort in knowing that. You see, We've been led to believe that all doubt is bad and that if I have any doubt, then I must not have real faith. However, we missed that sometimes, sometimes, the presence of doubt is a normal reaction of real faith. Sometimes doubt is an indicator of real faith. Look with me at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas's famous interaction has earned him the title or uh, gave him the title throughout history, Doubting Thomas. I mean, think about it. We even use this term pejoratively towards other people. If you're struggling with doubt, we say, don't be such a doubting Thomas. But I agree with D.A. Carson that it's not fair to really label him a skeptic, which uh, a skeptic would be somebody who starts with critical belief. The primary reason I would say that is because I don't believe this is the way the Gospel of John portrays him. The Apostle John himself doesn't portray him this way. Back in John chapter 11, when Jesus learns of Lazarus' sickness and eventual death, Jesus says, let's go to visit Lazarus. But we forget it was the rest of the apostles, the other apostles that said, no, let's not go because it's the, the religious leaders are there waiting to stone you. Now think about it. And I mean, if we can put two and two together, what are, the, what are the apostles really scared of? It's more likely that the apostles themselves are also scared of being stoned. Yet it was Thomas who stood up. Thomas among the 12 in verse 16 and said, let us also go that we may die with him. But secondly, notice also the situation that's going on right now. Their leader was just publicly humiliated and murdered. 
And now the text tells us that they're in the room with the doors locked. Now, the first thing we fixate on is the fact that Jesus in his resurrected state can walk through walls, which is still pretty cool. However, the other thing that we should be sensing in the text, it should be leaping out at us, is that the apostles are hiding. The apostles are scared. You see, at this moment, this very moment, claiming Christ, For the apostles, claiming him publicly is lethal. To put this another way, Thomas knows this resurrection has to be objectively true. This resurrection has to be objectively true or else it's worthless And it's absolutely dangerous and lethal. Thomas knows his life is on the line. You see, sometimes the presence of doubt is an indicator of real trust and really understanding what is at stake. Because you don't have to trust until you have to trust. Think about that statement. You don't have to trust until you have to trust. It's not until you actually have to trust that you're then in a situation where you actually have to trust. It's not until you're in that moment, doubtful that there is anybody in this room that is worried about the structural integrity of the Golden Gate Bridge right now. Why is that? Because no one in this room is actually having to drive across the Golden Gate Bridge. You know, probably the second most frightening experience for me uh, in my life was um, actually rock climbing on the side of a mountain. Now, at this moment, you might be asking yourself, wow, I wonder what the first most frightening experience was for him. And I'll let you guys wonder that all afternoon long. But the second most frightening uh, situation I've ever been in was rock climbing on, the, on a rock face on the side of an actual mountain. So I'm not a rock climber, but in college my uh, roommates were rock climbing and I loved hanging out with them. And so we went on a, a trip one spring break to the side of a, uh, to an actual mountain range out in the, in the Ozarks. And there was this rock face that... You had the side of the mountain, but there was a ledge that you could get on to be able to belay and and climb up another ledge. So keep in mind the visual. If you fell off of this rock face that you're climbing, you're likely going to, your body's going to hit the ground on this little plateau area and continue to fall down the side of the mountain. So my roommate was the, uh, a belay is when you have one person at the bottom and that person is controlling the rope and helping you up there. And I remember my first time getting out on the ledge and, fall and, do, and trying to climb the mountain. And as I was climbing the mountain and going up this rock face, I was terrified and I would, and I would, I would hold on to the rope and I would check the rope and I would kind of pull on it and sometimes pull, put my, my side on it a little bit. But my roommate... He wanted me to get over my anxiety and trust the rope. And so as he was down there, he would yell up at me, trust the rope, trust the rope. 
I also remember at that time one of my other roommates who had never been rock climbing, and his turn was next. He just hadn't been up there yet. Down on the ground next to him, yelling up with him, trust the rope, trust the rope. Does the absence of anxiety in him mean that he has more faith in the rope? Or does the presence of anxiety in me on the cliff mean that I'm struggling with my trust in the rope? And by trust in the rope, my roommate wanted me to literally kick myself off the wall and let the rope take me so I could feel the rope hold me. Put yourself in that situation. If you're on the side of the cliff and you're checking with that rope and you're, you're testing it and you're pulling on it and you're struggling with the doubt, but you're willing to put your faith in the rope, does that mean you have less faith in the person on the ground who has yet to put their life on the line? Who has the real faith? You see, Thomas knows I've given him everything. He said he'd rise from the dead, and now you're telling me he's out there walking around in a literal body. He's risen from the dead, and you're telling me I'm called to die for him? Literally everything in my life is on the line. I want to see the scars. Let me ask you a question. What would you do if you got to the end of your life? And you found out it was all a lie. What would you do if you got to the end of your life and found out that somebody produced the body of Jesus? That Jesus didn't really rise from the dead? That it was all a lie and a sham? Think about that for a moment. How would you respond? Would you respond by saying, well, you know, I had a good life. Being a Christian, it, it gave me a, a good source of social interactions. I got a good community. Whenever I moved or had a, a house project, I had a lot of people show up to help. Uh, we were in, able to do some good things, and uh, I was able even to give my kids a good ethical system, good morality, and get them enrolled into good, uh, a Christian school. And I lived a good life. Even though it didn't turn out, you know, that Jesus was who he said he was, I still got some other things out of it. Get, keep in mind, those are not bad things. I'm not saying that they're bad things. But is that how you would respond? There's a concept in gambling called hedging your bet. Now, I actually, I'm not a gambler. I don't uh, gamble. Maybe you might gamble some Cheerios with my kids when we uh, play cards with one another. But there's a, a concept in gambling called hedging your bet. Now, when you hedge your bet, uh, imagine you're going to a horse race, and you want to put majority of your money on this horse that you think you're winning. But if you're not solely confident that that horse is going to be the winner, you might hedge your bet by placing a little bit of money as a backup security in case that horse loses. Maybe you have a chance of not losing everything. Not all. But I would suggest that many don't have any doubts because they aren't scared enough regarding what's on the line. Maybe we have security tucked away somewhere else. 
Does it matter to you if it doesn't work out? Are you hedging your bet? If you got to the end of your life and, and found out it was a lie, would you say, I lived a good life and it worked out well? Or would you respond the way the Apostle Paul does? Think about how Paul responded. Think about the life he lived. He was beaten for Christ. All the apostles gave their lives for Christ. And Paul himself said, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Would you get to the end of your life and say, I wasted it all on Jesus? Or do you have all your security spread out in other areas? You see, I think Thomas gets it. Some of us could stand to have a little doubt, a little, a little bit of rope checking because some of us could stand to get off the ground, to get off the cliff and put all our faith and security in the rope that is Christ. Now let me clarify to you, what I'm not doing is glorifying skepticism. See, skepticism is the prideful beginning point that begins with doubt. Beginning saying, with, uh, with doubt and, and negative skepticism. There's a difference between that and the believer who humbly wrestles with doubt. Skepticism is the person on the ground who begins by saying that the rope will never hold me. Not all doubt is bad. Sometimes doubt is an indicator of faith because you don't have to trust until you actually have to trust. Which brings us to our final point in our text. We, here we also see simplicity in worship. You see, in our text, we could say this morning that Jesus is speaking to two people. In some sense, he's speaking to the, the people like Thomas who are wrestling with doubt, who are wrestling with doubts and wrestling with insecurities about the validity of the scriptures, the reality of God, the reality of, of Jesus and the resurrection. But here, Jesus is also speaking to some people with simple faith. And here we see that simple faith is legitimate faith. Hear it from Jesus. Contrary to what the world would lead you to believe, simple faith is legitimate faith. Look with me in verse 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet they believe. And yet they believe. And yet their life follows as one who has put their faith in the rope of Christ, trusting its presence. Let me ask you a question. Is it really reasonable to expect your 95-year-old grandmother to think like an Ivy League scholar? Now, let me clarify, maybe you actually do have an, a 95-year-old Ivy League scholar, professor, grandmother. I did not. Um, bless her, if, bless you, and bless her if you do. But is it reasonable to expect that all, and including children, respond and think like academics? Nothing against academics. Some people don't like Christianity because of its simplicity. I mean, think about how clever and academic the gospel doesn't sound to the modern mind we were created by an infinite god you and i 
We fell from him in Adam. The whole human race inherited our sinful nature from him. We continue to sin against him in thought, word, and deed on a daily basis. And we, apart from his grace and sovereign choosing, would be separate from him, destined to eternal wrath for all eternity, were it not that he sent his son, the second person of his nature, of the triune nature, which is mind-blowing in and of itself, God in human form to come and live the perfect life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died. He rose from the dead on the third day, and he is now ascended into heaven, and all who put their faith and trust in him have been told that we will get his account, we will be saved from our sins for all eternity. The world doesn't like that message because of how simple it sounds. But think about this for a second. Let me ask you, how reasonable and how logical does this sound that there would be a supreme God above all? Doesn't it make more sense that if he were to create a universe and if he were to guide human history such that it led to a supreme message that he expected all people to understand and get, Would it make more sense that he made that message in such a way that both the brightest and the simplest of minds could understand it? Or would it make more sense that he made the message in such a way that only the intellectual elite could grasp it? I'd argue the former. Simple faith is legitimate faith. Let me clarify, I'm not pitting one person against another, not pitting one person who desires to know and another person who just has uh, simple faith. And I'm not saying that bare faith is against data and facts, but rather, if you're here this morning and you have simple faith, your faith is true, legitimate faith. And here, for both people struggling with doubt and for those with simple faith, we find this morning that the only reasonable response is worship. Look with me. Verse 28, Thomas's response. Here Thomas responds saying, my Lord and my God. Keep in mind the text doesn't actually even tell whether or not Thomas placed his hands on Jesus's resurrected body. But Jesus calls the risen Lord my God. Think about the paradoxical nature of this passage. Beginning with Doubt, Thomas ends by claiming, Jesus, you are my God. If anybody ever says, Jesus never claimed to be God, it's not evidence in the scripture, here is one of your proof texts. Jesus not only receives Thomas's exclamation of calling him God, but Jesus even receives the worship. And as we close, let's think about the histor- what the historical testimony tells us about what happened to Thomas. Historical testimony tells us that Thomas died for this Jesus that he placed his hands on. Hippolytus wrote that Thomas preached to the Parthians, the Medes, the Persians, Hyrcanians, the Bactrians, and the Margians, and was thrust through in the four members of his body with pine spears at Calamine in the city of India and was buried there. 
If this is correct, as one pastor has pointed out, this means that Thomas led souls to saving faith in Jesus Christ in an area stretching from today's northeastern Iran covering Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India, an area approximately the size of the easternmost 25 states in the U.S. And he was, and he gladly gave himself, suffered persecution and torture based on the testimony that I saw the risen Lord alive, appearing inside the closed doors and coming and answering my request which he wasn't even in the room eight days later to hear. Some would say maybe he stole the body. Maybe some are in here that say maybe, he, maybe the apostle stole the body. But keep in mind, nobody dies for a lie. Maybe you're here this morning and saying, well, well maybe, maybe the first century believers uh, only hallucinated. Maybe they only thought that they saw the body of Jesus, the resurrected Lord. Re- resurrected Lord. But to them, it was actually just a hallucination. Well, keep in mind, people do not hallucinate in groups. Maybe you think that either Jesus was a legend or that he never claimed to be God, and yet he was a great moral teacher. As C.S. Lewis claims, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or something worse. Or we are left with the only other reasonable, rational conclusion that this man is, was, and forever will be the risen Son of God. Think about that reality. God became a man and he died and on the third day he rose from the dead. If that is the case, And if he did that on your behalf, the only reasonable, rational, intellectual response that makes sense is that you give him everything. Like holding on to that rope. Betting everything on him. Come to him. Faith like Thomas's cannot be shaken because it is the result of having been shaken. Are you looking for more this morning? Jesus this morning says, see my hands and put out your hand. Place it in my side. At the end of the day, God did not give us an argument. God gave us a body. He gave us a person. And the only reasonable response is, is to follow him in worship as well and die that we might live. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We give you glory. It is objectively true and worth it and trustworthy that you rose from the dead, but Lord, help us in our weakness. Lord, I thank you that you gave us this testimony of Thomas written in your holy word in order to to affirm us in our struggles, to say, I am a great and faithful high priest who is able to sympathize, and I have been tempted in all ways as you are, and yet without sin, and I see you. And I allowed Thomas to have this encounter with me to say that I see you and I can handle your struggles. 
Lord, any this morning who are struggling with doubt, Lord, help them to come to you this afternoon in the power of your spirit. And Lord, if anyone this afternoon is here, Lord, and they believe because they have heard the testimony and they place their faith in the rope and they trust you without seeing, Lord, bless them this afternoon and bless them this week in the power of your spirit. Lord, strengthen us to follow you with joy and trust this week to your glory. In your name we pray, amen.